Well, good morning, everybody. Morning. Hope you all slept well last night. Um, so our verse for the weekend is Romans 12, verse 20. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be constant in prayer. Now, this verse sits in the middle of a larger passage, which actually we're exploring over the whole weekend, which is Romans 12, 8 to 20. And that's what we're looking at in the, the main sessions and in the seminars over the weekend. And last night, Becca did a brilliant message around love. The command to love one another. This beautiful and powerful depiction of the need for love and the call for us to open up our hearts to a few more people. And so she explained to us last night, did, did Becca, and I know there's a few people here today who weren't here last night, so I'll, I'll just kind of briefly go over it again. But the book of Romans, it's a letter, it's written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian church in Rome. And Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11, you've got Paul developing the idea of what does the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for us, mean for the people of Rome that he was writing to. And it wasn't just about what Messiah Jesus meant for the Israelites, the people of God, but it was also the Gentiles as well, that this was a gospel message that was to include everybody. But this amazing truth of Jesus posed an issue. How do we respond to such a love? Having received such great mercies from God, what do I do by way of gratitude? Now in Old Testament times, and up until, until this point in history, you would quite literally take something physically to God and give it to God as a sacrifice. And this was your way of saying thank you. This was a thanks offering. But because of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, that, that, all of the sacrifices had kind of been rendered obsolete. That was no longer needed. And of course, you can worship gods with your lips, but it just didn't seem quite enough. And so Paul is wrestling with this question. And this is the, precisely the question that Paul is asking and then answers in Romans chapter 12. And he's saying, yes, there is actually still a sacrifice. But this is a sacrifice with a difference. We've got to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he says that at the very beginning of Romans 12. Now the ancients were familiar with the idea of a human sacrifice, but how do you offer yourself as a sacrifice and still be alive? And Paul transforms his whole idea of sacrifice. And he frames this entire chapter that now that God has had the, his last blood sacrifice offering in Jesus Christ, that we are rescued, that we as a people are to surrender our whole bodies, our whole lives to the service of God. And so over this weekend, we're looking at what that really means to be a living sacrifice. But just like Becca did last night, where she had a caveat, and her caveat was on boundaries in love. Yes, we're to love unconditionally, but there are boundaries. I want to give a caveat today and the rest of the weekend as well. And actually, this is what my seminar this afternoon, shameless plug, seminar this afternoon is focusing on. Um, my seminar is entitled Be Limited, because we're looking at what it means to be a living sacrifice, particularly for women. 
because we've been raised in a culture and, and the church perpetuates that to be a helper. We are the ones that deal with the practical. We are the ones that pick up the pieces. And yes, we are to be a living sacrifice, but we've been conditioned to say yes. And sometimes we're so sacrificial that it becomes damaging to ourselves, to our health, to our mental health. And so we're going to look in more detail in my seminar on what that means to live a limited life, but for sacrificial living. And so in this chapter, chapter 12 of Romans, you have this shift from this focus of chapters 1 to 11, which focuses on what God did through Jesus, and then chapters 12 to 15, where we focus on what does it mean for us? What are the practicalities? What does life in the Spirit look like? And this morning I want to focus on verse 11. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, zeal means, quite literally, great energy or enthusiasm. It's the pursuit of a cause or an objective, a passion, a motivation, a commitment. And then you have this second word, fervent. Again, it means displaying passionate intensity, quite literally hot and burning, glowing. And then actually, if you go back into verse 9, it says, detest or hate evil. Again, an incredibly, powerfully passionate word. We've got to cling to what is good. And these words that Paul specifically uses in these few verses are passionate words. They're words to describe what our response should be to this amazing gift of hope that has been given to us by God. But we all know that passion and zeal and being fervent that once we have it, and once we find it, it isn't something that's easy to maintain, is it? You know, we all know that a fire that isn't stoked, if we don't put the wood on the fire, if we don't tend to a fire, it will burn out. We all know that, you know, if you've been in a relationship and you fall head over heels in love and you, you're like all passionate and excited and there's that fire and then 20 years down the line when you're juggling kids and full-time jobs and sick relatives, you know, that passion, that needs to be stoked. There's some effort that needs to happen there. RAND is an American nonprofit global policy think tank that does research and analysis into United States armed forces. And in 2018, it published an article, it was actually an exhaustive study that it had done, called The Will to Fight, returning to the, fund to the human fundamentals of war. And it did all this extensive research. And what it found was that the will to fight was the single most important factor in winning a war. So, so what is the will to fight? Well, it, it's the disposition, it's the decision to fight and to keep fighting. It's motivation, it's, pass, it's passion, it's this dogged desire to keep going. And Rand claimed that this had been a great weakness in the US military over recent years because the best technology in the world, you know, the aircrafts that you have or, or the arms that you have or the numbers of soldiers that you have, actually they're useless when they come up against a force of will. 
a crowd of people that have a dogged desire, a zeal, fervent. And they analysed a lot of recent wars, and what they found is, with very few exceptions, almost all wars and all battles are decided not on the size of the army or the number of planes or submarines or ships that they have, but by a matter of human will, a passion. And some of the ones they looked at, 1916, World War I. On paper, France shouldn't have won the battle at Verdun. They were outskilled, out-technologied, outnumbered. But France won. This was all against America. 1960s and 70s, the Vietnam War. This huge country of America with all its power and might and finances. They should have won. On paper, they didn't. The Korean War, in the early 50s, again, USA expected to liberate North Korea, but it didn't. And tragically, actually, we're seeing this same thing unfold, aren't we, at the moment in, in Ukraine. The Russians expected to walk into the Ukraine and steamroller them as the bigger, most powerful nation. But the Ukrainians are showing a remarkable will to fight. Something that Russians hadn't counted on. And it's will that is important. Whether we win battles is based on our passion and our desire to win. And Rand noticed that the will to fight, the motivation to fight, was based on three main factors. The first one is our identity. Feeling part of something. Being part of a community with a common cause and a common mission and a common fight. Passion. That passion for that cause. And the third thing is anger. Detest what is evil. Anger. The person with a will to fight and a reason to fight will beat the one who can fight but doesn't have reason. And so far, the Ukrainians' incredible will to fight has been the difference in this war. United in their identity, their passion for their cause, their anger for what they see as evil. One cause, one mission, bringing a people together in community. And Putin's attempt, the enemy's attempt to take on the whole of Ukraine has actually made them as a nation, as a people, stronger, more united. And Paul emphasises this great energy, this passion, this will that is needed to fan the flames of our Christian walk, to energise us, to motivate us for the battles that we face. And yes, this chapter is full of practicalities of what we should be doing as a Christian. But for Paul, it isn't just about good works. You know, they're, they're the byproduct. They're the evidence of a transformed Christian life. Fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The evidence of a transformed Christian's life. But for Paul, it's the passion, it's the zeal, it's the motivation behind what we do. You know, you can be in the best army in the world, doing all the stuff on paper that will win a war. But without the right heart and the right motive, we will lose. And when we lose the reason why we're doing things, 
when it comes to be all about the acts themselves, when the focus becomes on the acts, bums on seats. How many good things are being done? Oh, look, look at what's happening. Which are all brilliant things, but when our focus shifts from God and from the ta- to, to the tasks that we do, we won't win the battle. We lose our desire, we lose our passion, our motivation, and the fight becomes functional. It becomes mechanical, and we become depleted and worn out. And very sadly, we've seen many Christian leaders in recent years who've fallen by the wayside, who in theory, when you look at their ministry, have done amazing works. You know, thousands of people reached, loads of people become Christians, resources, amazing. But fundamentally, the heart wasn't right. The motivation was wrong. The focus has gone off God. And the reason why it's been done, and it's gone into the actions, into what we are actually doing. And we should keep our motivations pure. And we should not lose our spiritual fervor. We should sit in the presence of the Spirit. Um, you're going to think Activator are all about plants, but um, we have a vegetable patch, after Rhiannon saying last night that she grows house plants. I don't do indoor plants. All my indoor plants are fake. Uh, I have one that is, is really on its last legs. Um, so I just do these really fancy fake ones. Um, but I do have a vegetable patch. And, uh, and we started this vegetable patch probably about six, seven years ago. And, and um, I'd never really done vegetable patch growing before. Um, and we started with all sorts of randoms, um, fruit and vegetables and weeds. Um, they were the best things that I seemed to manage to grow the most. Um, but we realised quite quickly that the trick to hobby vegetable patch growing, I don't know if that's a sentence, but anyway, is that you need to grow things that are high-yielding, so they produce a lot of fruit or vegetables, but actually don't take up a lot of room in your very limited space. So, for example, the first year we made the mistake of trying to grow cauliflowers, yeah? But you, see, everyone's shaking their head. Um, but you see, we thought cauliflowers, brilliant, but of course, they, they need, they take up a lot of room in your vegetable patch. So they take up a lot of room, and then you calculate the amount of time that they're in that space before you can harvest them, and then, obviously, how much they cost you down the shops, it's not really worth it, actually. <laughs> it doesn't seem like good value for money. So um, we started growing strawberries. Now, strawberries are brilliant because a strawberry plant doesn't actually take up much space. It, it ends up with loads and loads of fruit, and actually, they cost a fortune. So if you've got a family that eat loads of strawberries, it's brilliant. So we had success with strawberries in our, I think, second year, and we decided that we were going to plant some raspberry bushes. We thought, this is the way to go. We're going to go raspberries. So we planted all these raspberry canes, and they started to grow really, really well, and we were like, yes. And, and there was all these kind of strong green and all these like gazillion baby fruits all over them. Um, and then after a few weeks, the, the leaves started to curl, and I kept watering them, and they started to yellow. So I kept watering them, and the fruit never matured. It just withered and died before they'd ripened. And we were disappointed. And we do, did what we always do when we try and grow something that's unsuccessful. Um, we just ignored it for a year. Um, and the next year, these exact same plants started growing again. And again, they were lush and they were green and there was this gazillion baby fruits all over them. And we're like, yes. And then after a few weeks, the leaves started to wither and curl and yellow. And uh, so I did what all novice 
vegetable patch growers do, and I turned to Google for advice. What do you do before Google? <laughs> Encyclopedias or something, I suppose, the library. Um, but Google informed me that either the plants were diseased, I didn't want to know that, or it suggested that the soil that the plants were in were lacking in potassium. Because apparently raspberries need potassium-rich soil in order to be fruitful. And so we dashed to the hardware store, I bought some plant food, strong in potassium, I watered all these plants with this potassium food, and in a few days, the leaves started to go green again, and, and they stopped curling, they started going straight again, and, and within a few, well, within a month, six weeks, we were gathering in more raspberries than we knew what to do with. But what was interesting for me in that little vegetable patch experiment was there was nothing wrong with the plant. What was wrong was the soil in which it was planted. It was the same plant last year when it didn't bear any fruit, when it withered, when it, when it just almost died in season. What had changed was the chemical makeup of the soil in which it was planted. The soil was lacking the crucial ingredients that were needed to flourish. So that plant would flourish to its maximum potential and fruitfulness. And it made me realise that if we want our lives to flourish, to be fruitful, we need to be planted in the soil of God's grace. And what causes the slow decay, the yellowing and the withering of our leaves, the death of our fruits in our lives is purely the soil in which we are planted. If we lack zeal, if we lack that passion, what's the soil in which we're planted in? And unlike those raspberry bushes which are reliant on me, we have a choice of where we plant our roots. Are we planted in the soil of God's grace? Are we planted in God's word? Are we planted in community? Because if our life is not bearing fruit right now, if we're dealing with the same issues last year as we're dealing with this year or maybe the year before as well, maybe look at the soil in which we're planted. If we lack zeal, if we lack passion, if, if that verb is kind of just so, we're just a bit, you know, what are we planted in? Where are we getting our nutrients to help us to grow? The quality of what we're planted in and rooted in determines whether we flourish or wither in life. And Romans 12, verse 2, actually, Paul tells us how we are transformed. And it says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We transform our mind in God's word. And this was kind of partly the motivation of the B-Book that you all got this weekend. Trying to make the word of God, the daily devotions, accessible, relatable, so we can root ourselves in God's word. We can give it to other people to root them in the word of God in a way that we can understand and we can relate to. Because the constant careful absorbing of the word of God leads to passion. It leads to motivation. It fans that flame. Because we are simple creatures. And the more you expose yourself to something, the more you're rooted in the right thing, the more it becomes a part of you. My youngest son is 17 in a few months, and he's desperate to learn to drive. 
Um, my almost 19-year-old has no interest. He's never even had a driving les lesson. He only got his provisional passport so he could have ID. Because um, <laughs> he doesn't look quite 18, even though he's nearly 19. But, you know, so, so he's desperate, my 17-year-old, just to drive. And it took me back to, do you remember the first time you ever got in a car? And, you know, you, you're there, and you're there, you're gripping on the steering wheel for dear life, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm changing gear. What am I doing with my feet? What's happening with my wind mirrors? What's happening all around me? Where's the indicator and the wipers and all this? And it seems so much you're literally concentrating to the point of almost exhaustion. You get out of the car after an hour's lesson, and you're like, ah, oh, aren't you? you know, I'll take it if I'm so tired. And then after a few years of driving, you'll have done this. Have you ever pulled up the drive after a long day of work and gone, hmm, I actually have no recollection of the last 30 minutes. I don't remember navigating those roundabouts or those traffic lights. How did I get here? You know, we can hold a conversation, we can listen to a podcast, we can concentrate on a radio show. We could never have done that in the early days of driving. And driving becomes second nature. So much so you don't even need to think about it. It almost is an extension of yourself. And the more we saturate ourselves, the more we root ourselves in God's word, the more we expose ourselves to his truth, we immerse ourselves in God's promises, the better equipped we are going to be to face a life and live a life of zeal and courage and strength and passion that will help us fight those battles. And we need a daily reminder of who God is and what he can do for us, saturating ourselves in God's word. So we will truly believe that God is all-powerful, that God always keeps his promises, God always can be trusted, and God always is there for us, the foundations of our faith. And Paul tells us we must be fervent in our spirit. We must keep our spiritual fervor. Keep our spiritual fervor. I really enjoy um, listening to podcasts and uh, I listened to um, Kirsty Young on Desert Island Discs, and this was a few years ago I listened to this one. But what's really interesting is you, you get to listen to different um, people who are famous either in business or, um, or, or the arts, you know, and you get to see something about the personal person behind this public persona. And a few years ago, it was about five years ago, she interviewed Noel Gallagher, who um, is part of, along with his brother Liam, they started the 1990s Manchester band Oasis. And Noel is the talented one in that he writes all the songs. And Kirsty Young asked Noel about the process of songwriting for him. And so he said this, he said, I believe that there is someone up there who is dropping songs all over the place. And if I'm not there to catch them, Chris Martin, that's Coldplay, Chris Martin's getting them. Or, or, or Bono, you two. Bono's getting them, and they've had enough songs. Says, There's no way they're getting them said this, he said, I do it every day. He said, every day I'm there fishing in the river for songs. And this implication is really quite, it stopped me in my tracks when I listened to that, because the implication is you've got this incredibly gifted, successful songwriter. He's written some of the most iconic songs of our generation. And yet for him, the songs just don't happen. He doesn't just get the songs as he's kind of down the pub or as he's in the supermarket or whatever he's doing, he literally actively fishes every day. Where do we position ourselves in our faith walk? Yeah, very good. Are we every day fishing for songs? 
Now, obviously, in terms of the Holy Spirit, there isn't this finite amount of power. You know, we've got to elbow people out the way. To, oh, Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's my turn for this bit, you know. You know, there's enough Holy Spirit and power for everybody. But Noel Gallagher has a hunger. He's got this desire. The songs just don't fall on his lap without effort on his part. And every day he's searching. Every day he's waiting. Every day he's expecting. Every day he's hoping. And the imagery is the same for us. Are we positioning ourselves in the optimum place to, to receive the power of God, the Holy Spirit? We've got to fan our spiritual fervor. And that can be, yes, our part. We have to fan that spiritual fervor. But also we have the Holy Spirit, the advocate. I love, I love that. The fact the Holy Spirit is our advocate, our helper, that has come to help us, to give us that spiritual zeal. Are we positioning ourselves so we can receive the power? Where are we? Are there things in our lives that are stopping us from being in a place when we can receive the power of God? Are we waiting in the wrong place? Are we open to the Spirit of God working in our lives? Both my sons, well, one still plays football, one doesn't anymore, he's older and he just doesn't, but, but both of them played football and one is um, a striker and the other one was, is a goalkeeper. Um, and the striker son, it's not the best, um, when he was younger, put it this way, he was like the super sub. Um, he'd be lucky if he got 10 minutes of a game. But, um, and the, the, the coach used to put him in various positions around the pitch. Um, and eventually, it was kind of, you know, sometimes he'd be midfield, sometimes he'd be in defence. But largely speaking, they used to start, well, they started putting him up front as a striker. I think it was to keep him out of the way of the game so he didn't interfere. But, <laughs> but what was weird was, and he really isn't talented at sport particularly, or, sorry, son, I guess listening to this. <laughs> but he's not particularly talented at sport at all. But what was interesting was, up front, he actually found his niche as a striker. Because he wasn't technically the best, but he had a, a tremendous sense of position. And he realised that if he stood in front of the goal mouth, near the goalkeeper for long enough, if he just hovered in that area, you could guarantee that one of the players that were incredibly talented would, would kick this accurate ball right into the box. And while he would be stood there, it would never be a skillful move. It was generally a rebound off the back of his head or a leg or something. <laughs> but he would score a goal. And we were like, how has he done that? As well as going, well done, so you're so talented. <laughs> you know. And he just had this great sense of position, spending time in the right place. And quickly, not because of anything that he did, not because of technical skill, quickly he became the top scorer, goal scorer, not only of his team, but of the football league that he was in. <laughs> we're like, how is that possible? Every day the early church devoted themselves to meeting together. Every day they gathered in the temple and in people's homes. Every day they broke bread. Every day. Every day they positioned themselves so they were in the right place to receive the power. And it was from that place that they were able to go out and reach the world. It was from that grounding, that position of being planted in God's word, of being in a place where they could receive the Holy Spirit, of being in community that fanned that flame of zeal, of passion, that enabled them to go out and do all these practical things that Paul says in Romans 12. And it's interesting in Romans 12, 
Because Paul starts off talking about going out. He, he, he talks about actually being together as community. The early Christian church actually met together. And then, corporately, with one mind, with one spirit, with one passion, they went out. <coughs> Don't give up meeting together. Hebrews 10, 25. We've not been able to meet together for two years, largely speaking. We've been able to do it on Zoom. It's not the same. It's brilliant. My goodness. Can you imagine what it would have been like had we not had the technology we've had? It's been phenomenal. But don't give up meeting together. Let's not get out of the habit. Because creation was not complete without community. Jesus worked in and with 12 disciples in community. The church was formed together in community. And when they celebrated Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit came. Will we fan our spiritual fervor and zeal? Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, that you give us your word that is a light that can shine on us the path in which we follow. Lord, that you are faithful. I thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit. Lord, you have given us the tools. I thank you that you created the church, that community and together is where we found that flame of zeal to help us to fight personal battles our own personal battles in life, but also battles for our communities and battles for the wider world. That our faith isn't just about me and you, God. My, our faith is also about us and other people. And I thank you that we're called to action. But Lord, I just pray that we don't act from a place of feeling we need to act, but we act from a place of being rooted in your word, in your community, and with the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen.